I want to charge right back into what we've been studying uh, this whole fall semester thus far. And I want to begin by reading a familiar passage to you, probably one that you could recite from memory, but I want to read from the Gospel of John, chapter 3 and verse 16. John chapter 3, verse 16 goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now it's a central passage. It's a familiar passage. This is the Apostle John giving commentary to what Jesus has said in the Gospel of John chapter 3 verses 1 to 15 and then John pauses and gives commentary. Wow! This is how much God loves. This is how much God loves. This is how much God loves that he gave his only begotten son. So then really, truly, practically, and actually in our lives, what does it mean that God actually loved the world? And not the world, meaning the, the globe, the planet, but obviously in this context, he loved the world, the people who inhabited the planet, the population of the earth. What does it mean that he loved them? Well, just by way of illustration, I'll tell you that this coming December, not only are we, Lord willing, launching the Henderson campus, but this coming December, I will also celebrate with my wife 25 years of marriage. That's right. If you have no other evidence for grace, let me just give you, there's one. 25 years of perfect, sinless, wedded bliss will be commemorated. We are now those people, and we have been for a year or two, we are now those people who have been married humans longer than we've been unmarried humans. Ugh. I've, I never thought I would live long enough to be that kind of a person, but now I've actually been married longer than I haven't been married. And I was thinking this week about how much does God love us about that time when I first, very first told her that I loved her. Now, I want you to just time travel with me for a moment. I want you to go back in time and just imagine about 26 and a half years ago when I told her for the very first time that I loved her. There we were in Waco, Texas. It was the early 90s. It was July. It was about the same temperature as the space shuttle when it's this high off the ground. I mean, just 125,000 degrees Kelvin. It was miserable. And so we were in my apartment. I was wearing my very best Jeffrey Bean khaki-colored polo. That's right. Imagine. I mean, this was the 90s. This thing had been washed maybe three times that year. It was incredible. And I was with her, and I was overwhelmed. I was overcome. I had to finally go ahead and break spade and tell her that I loved her. And I told her, I was like, you're amazing. She had this long, black raven hair. It was phenomenal. She had these dark, piercing eyes that could see through space and time and soul. And by the way, they still can. She had this wonderfully syrupy, nougat-drenched alto voice that could melt titanium, and it still does. And I told her, the fact is, you finally have stopped calling law enforcement when I'm around. I think I love you. And I just said it. I love you. She was the smartest person I'd ever met. She was the person of wisdom and depth, and I loved her. I was crazy about her. When I told her that I loved her, it was all about her virtue and why she was so wonderful, why she was worth it. And I meant it then, and I mean it now. Surely that's what God means when God said, through the prophet John, God so loved the world. He looked at us and he said, I'm just so 
crazy about them. I have all of their pictures on my refrigerator. I just, they're so wonderfully lovely and virtuous. They're so pretty, all of them. Well, perhaps we were wonderful and we're worth it, and he's just crazy about us because we're lovely and smart and precious and attractive and all those things. Or, or perhaps, just maybe, there's a different approach that might actually help us to understand and apply the gospel. So this morning, I want to try and handle a passage in the book of Romans that I think is one of the most powerful and profound for every person sitting in this room, that all of us would actually hear and practically believe what I think is the big idea of this passage, and it goes like this. God loves you so much. God loves you so much. And it will be the Apostles Paul endeavor to show you and to convince you just how much he loves you and therefore what that actually means in a very practical way. So we're gonna be in the book of Romans chapter three. I'll begin reading in verse 21. I invite you to turn there or to punch that up on your smart device. In the book of Romans, chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, I want to remind you that Romans really is the encapsulation of the entire Bible, and that the theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the whole theme of the book of Romans. It's going to be the refrain over and over and over again. It has been said that this paragraph I'm about to read chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, is the most important chapter in the whole of the Bible. Now, that's a lofty thing to say. I don't know that that's true, but I certainly don't know that it's not true. That this passage, this paragraph, is the most important paragraph in the entire Bible. To put it to you this way, if some reason, if somehow you got word that some bad guys were coming to your house and they were going to take every single one of your Bibles, hard copy, and off your devices... This is the place you would go and you would tear this page out and you would commit it to memory as fast as you could and when they kick the door in, you swallow it. It is that central of a passage. So with all that as a run-up, I'm gonna read Romans chapter three, beginning in verse 21 to 26. Paul writes, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's word. This is, I would contend, a proclamation of the gospel. Our walking around definition that we use at this campus for the gospel is, the gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. But that is a human problem that requires a divine solution. And it's good news. He's done this. The gospel is a person. It is not merely a set of beliefs that we agree with or adhere to so that we can go to heaven one day when we die. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a person. He has done it in Christ. 
Now, this passage gives us the, the theological underpinnings so that we will think rightly and feel deeply about Jesus. It is a great grand Christology so that we will worship in spirit and in truth. This paragraph is enormous. We literally could spend months and months on it. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous 20th century preacher, spent 26 weeks on this paragraph alone. A little bit more recent, John Piper preached on this for 14 weeks. And then on the 15th week, he showed up and nobody was there. <laughs> so we're not going to do that. We're going to try to get through this relatively efficiently and nimbly. Martin Luther said of this paragraph, this paragraph is the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. It's the central paragraph of the entire Bible is what Martin Luther said. The expression the righteousness of God shows up four times in this paragraph. Now that's super important because Paul understands what I want all of us to understand that the righteousness of God is the currency of his kingdom. You can have no standing, no place before God Almighty unless you are full to the brim with righteousness. And so Paul's going to talk about this, giving the gospel four times, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God four times. So let me begin to just unpack this as efficiently as I can. Again, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on it. We're not going to. Verse 21, Paul starts off, but now. Now this is a tremendous literary shift from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul has been giving the doctrine of condemnation, demonstrating and describing total depravity, the default out-of-the-wrapper condition of every human heart, prone to wander, inventing ways of doing evil, assuming moral high ground, relative superiority to their neighbors and community members and family members. And Paul says, no, Everybody is under sin. We are slaves to sin. That's very bad news. Paul's creating a very black backdrop so that he can give the fully orbed gospel. Everybody, Jew, Gentile, Greek, barbarian, man, woman, is under sin. It is the master that calls the shots is sin. But now, Paul says, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been, your translation might say manifested, I would prefer that it would say revealed. The word is apocalypse, as in it's been unveiled. It was hidden. It wasn't a secret. It wasn't some trick. It had been previously veiled. But now, Paul says, things have changed. The, the pattern and the norm of the Old Testament under the covenant of Moses, where it was bi-directional, it was transactional. You had to do a thing to get a thing. But now, it's changed. It has been revealed it was there dimly, but we just couldn't see because God hadn't made it plain. But Paul says, great news. The thing that we looked forward to for 1,500 years since Moses, 15 centuries, y'all, it's here. It's been revealed. Like, I can't be more excited about this, Paul says. He wants to give them the gospel so that they will understand that the old way has passed away, the new has been revealed. And how has it been revealed? Well, this is interesting. He says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. Ooh, God has spoken in a different new novel way, not from the law of Moses, not just from the instruction of the Old Testament. Something additional has come apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
all of the Old Testament, the law, the five books of Torah, of the Pentateuch, and everything thereafter, all of the prophets, all of it points to the coming of Messiah. It builds this anticipation, this eagerness, this fervor, this zeal of, oh man, this is cool, but it's not enough. The nation of Israel, man, that's neato. It's not enough. Hey, Noah had an ark. That's cool. It's not enough. We are left wanting more. So that even Jesus himself, after the resurrection, tells the disciples on the road to Emmaus, everything in the scriptures is pointing to me. I know it's a cool story about David and Goliath, but if you don't understand that it's pointing to me, the Messiah, then you don't understand David and Goliath. I know it's a cool story about Daniel in the lion's den, but if you don't understand that that's about me, then you don't understand Daniel in the lion's den. It's all pointing to preparing for the coming of Messiah, the one who will be the ultimate fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament, who will bring all the blessings that God promises. All of that is pointing to Christ. See, the nation of Israel was miraculously conceived. There's a man named Abram living in Ur of the Chaldees, modern Babylon in Iraq today, and he's a 70-something-year-old moon worshiper with a barren wife. That's how I'm going to start my people, God says. And he brings them into Canaan. Sarah gets pregnant, and then she has a baby. That's, what, that's a miraculously conceived Israel. And that's pointing us to a later miraculously conceived Israel who will be the Messiah. Everything is pointing to Jesus. And if you don't know that, you won't understand how to read the Old Testament. Even the greatest passage in youth ministry history is in the Old Testament, and it's pointing to Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? That story with Elisha, who gets teased by some adolescent teenagers, and he calls down bears on them, and they eat the teenagers. It's the best youth ministry passage ever. Like, I so prayed for that gift when I was a youth pastor. Like, oh, God, please send bears. I know there's none around here, but you're God. It never happened, praise God. Even that, strangely, is pointing to Christ. And Paul says, the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets bear witness to this apocalypse, to this revealing of the righteousness of God. Now, this expression is also coming back from chapter 1, verse 17. But now, he says in verse 17, the righteousness of God is being revealed. Why? Because the wrath of God, in verse 18, is being revealed. So Paul says, there's a humongous problem because all are under sin, the wrath of God is being revealed. What's going to happen? Ah, well, here we're going to get a more detailed unpacking of chapter 1, verse 17. That's what this paragraph's all about. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God. And this verse has been the product of libraries full of books written about what this verse means. I will tell you very briefly, there are two possible interpretations or translations of this verse, both of which are doctrinally correct. So don't get all out of whack and bent, wrapped around the axle wondering which one it actually is. I have a strong preference for what this passage actually says, and I'll tell you why. But both of them are doctrinally correct. I just want to faithfully handle it with you. In verse 22, it says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. That's great. That's nice. We like that. I agree with that. Some of your Bibles might have a slightly different translation. Some of your Bibles might say, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. This translation, the ESV, has decided to go with the sort of the classic approach. I take it grammatically and contextually that it's probably the latter. 
No biggie, doesn't really change all that much, but it is interesting. Paul seems to be making a point that the righteousness of God is revealed. It's a person. He has done a thing. Paul's trying to show us how much God loves us. So I take it the better translation because of the context in verse 22 is the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all believe. Now, why do I say that? Because if it's not that translation, then it's bizarrely redundant and hard to explain away. If the first translation is correct, then this is what it would technically read as, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who have faith in Jesus Christ. Because faith and belief are actually the exact same word in the Greek. So he could be saying the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who have faith in Jesus. That seems a bit redundant. It seems a better point that Paul's trying to make in the context of the paragraph and the letter that it is the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. Jesus did a thing, and Paul uses that title, Jesus Christ. That's not just words. Jesus is his human name. Yeshua, God saves. It's what he came to do, to be the personification, the, the human iteration of the salvation of God. Christ is the Greek word Christos, which is a transliteration of the anointed one, Hebrew, Messiah. That is his divine office. He is the human who brings salvation. He's also God. His faithfulness is applied to those who believe. Now that is how much God loves us, is that he sent this one to be faithful for those who are unfaithful. That's amazing. Verse 23, there's no distinction, he says, verse 22, because all have sinned. I want you to notice the verb tenses here. All have sinned. That's past tense. It happened in a moment in time. It's done. There's no undoing it. All have sinned and present action, they continually, consistently fall short of the glory of God. So it's not like you can say, well, I made a mistake, but now I'm going to get my act together. No, it's a done deal. All have sinned. They have acted. They have operated. They have executed some thought, word, or deed apart from faith. It's done. Case closed. You're guilty. And we continually, consistently fall short of God's glory, his holiness, his perfection, his purity, his morality. We don't have his righteousness. And no amount of, hmm, let me do a quick uh, resume read of all my greatness, all my goodness, all my accomplishments. None of that accomplishes a single iota of righteousness. None of it does. We fall short. Well, verse 24, and are justified. This is the first time in the book of Romans Paul uses this verb, justified. It is the verbal form of the word righteous and are enrightified or justified, if you like. Now, I gotta talk about this for a moment because perhaps you've heard the definition of justified given like this. To be justified, it's just if I'd never sinned. Sorry, insufficient funds. It's clever, it's portable, not nearly enough. It's not just if I'd never sinned. That would be nice, but it would be pointless. It is not enough to have one's sin removed. That's not the point of the gospel. It's not the point of the book of Romans. The book of Romans is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not enough just to have your sin removed. You must also be full of the righteousness of the Son of God as well. Justified means I have been found guilty, red-handed, dead to rights, guilty of sin, and declared righteous. By his word, God said, let there be light, and there was. 
by his word, he said, you are guilty, and I declare you, not just not guilty, I declare you righteous. I view you through the same lens of affection and attention that I view Jesus, the Son of God himself, because I say so. See, he's the only parent in all existence that can actually say that and be right. You're a parent. Your kids ask you, how come? How come? How come? Why? And you go, because I say so. Well, you were wrong because you're not God. But God can say, I declare it to be so because I declare it to be so. How much does God love you? Despite all the mounting evidence to the contrary, despite all of your guilt, all of your shame, all of your evil, your wickedness, your propensity to do evil, I declare you righteous. Now that is a scandal of grace. Now Paul uses this word justified. It is a legal judiciary term. Keep that in mind. He's going to use three different words to give us the gospel. The first is justified. It is a legal term, a court of law, where the judge who sits enthroned on the bench is also the offended party. You never want that. You never, ever want that, where the offended party is also the sovereign judge. That's the, that's the context of what's going on here. So verse 24, Paul's going to give us another word. And are justified. How? By his grace as a gift. Paul goes redundant here. We are justified. We are found guilty, declared righteous by his grace as a gift. What's going on? How much does God love you? He declares you righteous with no cause. Let me explain. The word here is Dorian. It's the same word that Jesus uses on Temple Mount in John chapter 7 and 8 when he tells the leaders of Israel, you hate me. You're trying to kill me. Dorian. Not as a gift. You're trying to kill me. You hate me. You dislike me for no cause. You have no reason to do what you're trying to do. Paul uses the exact same word. We are justified, found guilty, declared righteous, by grace, for no cause. Oh, God has a reason for declaring you righteous, but you are not that reason. Maybe you've never known that or heard that before. He declares you righteous. If you are a believer... If you believe that Jesus is alive and did what he said he would do, he declares you righteous for no cause. That's an astonishing grace. But he's not done there. Verse 24. Through, how did he do this? Through the redemption. This is a second important word. Apolotruo. It is to buy back from the slave market. Paul makes up a complicated word here. So first we have been justified, that is declared righteous, or sorry, found guilty, declared righteous. Now he says we are the recipients of redemption. It's an economic term. It's a commercial term. It's a marketplace term. You had all these slaves that were bound in the market. They were to be bought and used for whatever purpose the owner wanted to use them for. And they could never, ever, ever, ever earn enough money to buy their freedom because they're slaves, do you see? How are you going to earn money when you're a slave and everything you produce goes to your master? But apolatruo, redemption means you have been bought out of that market and set free. How did that happen? Well, there was a price paid in Christ Jesus. He is the price paid. It is a free gift, but it didn't, it wasn't free to the Lord. He bought us back and he released us. He didn't bind us to the law. No, no, he bought us out of sin and he released us. And to whom was that ransom price paid? Not to the devil as people thought for 1,200 years. Oh, no, 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 no. He doesn't have that kind of sway. He is short of cash, but he doesn't have that kind of power. 
No, the price was paid to the offended party, God himself. That is astonishing. So, verse 24, we have been justified by his grace as a gift for no cause, that is, through the redemption, the buying back out of the slave market that is in Christ Jesus. So we have justification, we have redemption. Verse 25, this Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Okay, get comfy. This is one of the most beautiful words in the entirety of the New Testament. This is the third word. We have justification, found guilty, declared righteous. We have redemption, bought back, released from the slave market. Now he's going to use not a judicial word, not a marketplace word. Now he's going to use a religious word. A propitiation. Some of your translations might say substitutioning, atoning sacrifice. Some of your translations might say expiation. Okay, that's fine. The better term is propitiation. God set him forth as a propitiation. This is a religious term. Every religion in that day, whether it was Roman, Greek, pagan, Germanic, every religion operated under propitiation. What this word means is an offering that you make to appease your deity so that you can have favor with your deity. If you're in Rome, you go to the temple and you offer some sort of sacrifice, a libation offering, a piece of meat, grain, money, flowers, whatever, so that that alleged deity will find favor with you and bless you by giving you a safe sea voyage or victory in war or commercial dealings or health or fertility for your family or your crops or relational bliss or you're going for an office in the government. You make a propitiation offering and that deity finds favor and blesses you. Paul says, God set forth Jesus as the propitiation. Because what are you going to bring God to help him find favor? Nothing, although we try. Although we try. Look, God, look what I've done. I didn't speak to that school zone today. <laughs> hey, look, God, I was good. I got mad, but I didn't cuss too much. Look, God, we, we do all these things. It's like, God, you're going to bless me now. I pay my taxes. Where's the blessing? That's a false propitiation. Paul says God set him forth as a propitiation. The Greek word is hilasterion. That, ver that word only shows up here in Romans, once in Hebrews, and once in 1 John. It is a very technical term. Way back in the Old Testament, the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, uses this word over and over and over again. Here's what would happen on what's called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. By the way, Tuesday, this week, is Yom Kippur. This coming Tuesday is the Day of Atonement, the Holy High Day in, of Israel. The high priest would have to have his own person ceremonially cleaned. He'd have to kill an animal, an innocent animal, and he would take that blood, he'd put it on his earlobe, on his thumb, and his toe. Yeah, that's weird, but that's just what would happen. And then the high priest would go in secret into the temple, then into the holy place, and then behind the main curtain to the Holy of Holies, where there was a big golden box. That box was wood that was layered in gold, and inside the box were the Ten Commandments, the Law of Moses. Two stone tablets. By the way, each tablet has all Ten Commandments on it. It's not that God couldn't write very small, so we had to put it on two tablets, five and five. No, no, no. There's two copies of the law in the Ark of the Covenant. That's another story for another time, but there are two copies, Ten Commandments each on each tablet, and they existed in the box. And there was a golden lid with two cherubim over the lid to show the awesomeness that God was watching. 
And the high priest would go in and he would take the shed blood of an innocent animal and he would sprinkle blood on that mercy seat, which is translated hilasterion, which is a propitiation. Now, the high priest would do that in private, in secret. Nobody could see what was going on in there. It was completely hidden. But Paul says, let me tell you how much God loves you. God pushed him forward out into the open to the north of Temple Mount, had him stripped naked, beaten, mocked, scourged, hanged on a cross. He became the mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled. What would God do? God would look through that blood at the law and know that the law has not been satisfied, but I will temporarily accept this. And Paul says, Jesus was put forth publicly as the mercy seat for all sacrifice for all time. This is why Paul, when he's standing before Felix being interrogated, he says, Felix, you know this happened. God didn't do this in a corner. This is why Paul will say in Galatians, I preached Christ. I placarded his crucifixion. It's not a secret. This is how much God loves you. He pushed publicly forward the only sacrifice that God would accept. You can't bring anything that God would accept. He provided his own sacrifice, yea, his own person of son, Jesus Christ. So we have three different words. We have justification, which is a judicial term. We have redemption, which is a commercial marketplace term. And we have propitiation, which is a religious term. This is why most believe, and I agree, when Christ was crucified and they put a sign over his head, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews, this is why they wrote it in Latin and in Greek and in Hebrew. The language of the judiciary, Latin, the language of the marketplace, Greek, and the language of the religion of this one, Hebrew. And Jesus fulfills all three of those things perfectly in his death at the cross. This is how much God loves you and he loves me. Well, we're just to verse 25. Because, in the verse 25, in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Hey, wait a minute, Paul. How was God just allowing these things to happen? Isn't he righteous? Oh, he's righteous. He's righteous. Someone could sin in the Old Testament and not be instantly incinerated because God would temporarily, through his divine forbearance, patience, accept that temporary sacrifice as a covering, but never a full atonement, but always knowing that that sin would have to be atoned for. Punishment would be meted out. So verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus to show that he is righteous, to say, I am just as the judge and the offended party, and I am therefore the one who declares you righteous. God is righteous, and he offers that righteousness freely in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, very, very quickly, just to round out the chapter, verses 27 to the end, very fast. Then Murray pops back up again. For those of you who are new, let me introduce you to Murray, the imaginary objector of the book of Romans, who always seems to have a problem with Paul. Murray asks questions then what becomes of our boasting? Hey, but what about all of our pride? The word boasting here is a military term, what a general does to, to gloat about his conquest and his armies. Well, what about all of our things that we're proud of? Look at our building. Look at our stained glass windows. Look at our attendance. Look at our offering, Paul says so briefly. Yeah, um, it's excluded. It doesn't count for anything. It's pointless and worthless, so stop it. But what kind of law? By a law of works? No, Paul says, but by the law of faith. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified. 
declared righteous, having been found guilty. How? By faith, apart from the works of the law. It's got nothing to do with what you do. Verse 29, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. I love this. The universal accessibility of salvation is rooted in the fact that God is one. Now, that's a deep theological idea, but it is not like there's a God over there and a God over there, and you got to go find yours and pick one. No, no, no. There is one God. God is one. He's the God of Jews and of Gentiles. Therefore, salvation is universally accessible and available to everybody. Verse 30, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We're not trying to be good. We're not trying to get better. We're trying to recognize that Jesus wants to live his life through me. It's not just what would Jesus do. It's how would Jesus live my life if he were me? Because that's his program, that we would be walking around embodiments of the perfectly fulfilled law of Moses. Does that mean we don't sin? Doesn't mean that. Means we have the law written on our hearts. We are equipped with the, with the uh, written word of God in our Bibles. And God wants to continue to do a work. You see, for God so loved the world. So that's the gospel. God's done it. He put himself forward, his own son forward as the justification, the redemption, and the propitiation. So what are we supposed to do? Every time I give the gospel, inevitably someone will say, got it, I get it. Okay, so, so what you're saying is, Jesus is God's son. He lived, he died, he was buried, he rose on the third day, he lived again, and he's going to be okay. So, okay, good. So now, I got that, I believe that. Now, what do I do? No, 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 we, we're going to start over. You're not, you're not getting it. You don't do anything. So I think the very best thing I can do to help people to know what they are to do, this is the best image I can give you. When you hear the gospel, what do you do? You wave the white flag. I think this is the best image I can give for receipt of the gospel is that you surrender. You simply surrender. I stop striving. I recognize that he is God. I lay down all of my attempts at achievement, of earning, of accomplishing. I surrender. I've tried it this way. didn't work. I've tried it that way. It didn't work. I'm trying it this way. doesn't work. This is faith. What Martin Luther said, hurling yourself on God. In every context, I surrender. Not just on Sunday mornings, incidentally. Oh, no, 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 no. Every context, you wave the white flag you actually begin to embrace the jacked-uppedness that you are and that God loves you so much anyway. Wave the white flag. This white flag is more than just me saying, okay, I, I quit. No, no, no. It means that I have lost and that he has won. And I bend the knee and I yield and I say, okay, I got nothing. I got nothing. You're right. All that you say about me is right. Do what you will. And he says, great. Now we can start. And he kills the fatted calf. And he puts the robe on me. And he puts the ring on me. He calls me son. He elevates me to prominence and says, I love you. Now let's go. And I go, what am I supposed to do? And he goes, no, 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 no. Start over. Start over. <laughs> do you remember when we first started, I talked about how much I loved Susan, my wife, well, I want you to just imagine a conversation. Had the conversation then gone like this, when I told Susan, I love you so much, and here's why. What if she would have said, Eric, I, I love you too. Your eyes are like the contents of a baby's fluey diaper. 
Your hair is like a burning scarecrow, but less neat. Your, your skin, it's like, I mean, really? Freckles? Who has freckles these days? It's like a fire ant parade happening all... What? Ugh, it's disgusting. Your voice is like nails on a chalkboard. Eric, I haven't smelled breath like that since I poured out old milk on a burning tire. Like, what is wrong with you? You may be, Eric, the most unintelligent, unattractive creature on the planet. And I love you. Because that's what I'm like. I love you. Not because of you. I love you because I'm the kind of person that loves you because of who I am, not because of who you are. Now, fortunately for Susan, she got all this. And she didn't have to say all that. I mean, listen, all right? But that's actually what God means when he says, for God so loved the world. It's like I read this passage and I hear God say, Eric, I love you. You, you Eric, you, you are the captain of the A-team. A-team? That sounds like varsity. That sounds like Hannibal. That sounds like, yeah, A-team. He goes, yeah, no, no, I love you. You're, you're all about the A's. And I go, good, good, straight A's. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You are a person of anger. You're always mad. People offend you. They frustrate you. You treat people by nature as less than the image that I created them. You're a person of anger. I go, ooh, that didn't feel so great. He goes, you're You're arrogant. You're arrogant. You think more of yourself than you should while secretly knowing that you're actually less, but you keep trying to manufacture this facade and to put on airs so that people will think better about you, so that you will feel better about you. You're arrogant. Yeah, you're right. Oh, I'm not done, he says. You're, you're adulterous. <laughs> your heart and your eye wanders to beauty less noble than what I have prepared for you. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, oh, wait, I'm not done. He says, you are amazingly apathetic. You're lazy. You'd rather just not do anything. He says, you're, you're abusive towards others. You, you abuse substances and, and food and other crutches. You're just an abusive person. And he's right. And I know it. He's totally right. That's me. Totally unlovely and unlovable then I hear this passage and I see what God says, but I love you so much. Not because of what you are, don't you see? But because of who I am. Because that's what I'm like. I love you for no cause. Embrace your jacked upness. Step into it, face it, and recognize that you are loved anyway. Now let me conform you into the image of my son and you will never have such joy and such life but you have to surrender. You have to surrender. Some of you this morning, you've never actually done this. Oh, you don't want to go to hell when you die. I don't blame you. I wouldn't want to go there either. I'm from the panhandle. It's pretty close. I wouldn't want to go there either. But some of you have never actually surrendered. You're still trying to prove to God how lucky he is to have you on his team. And you've never understood the justification, the redemption, and the propitiation that he has provided publicly in his son. And so I invite you to believe that this is all true and to surrender. That's faith, to simply receive whatever you're trying to still prove to yourself, to us, or to God, let it go. To simply believe. For the rest of you, 
You've been believers for a very long time, but you have forgotten, and you're still now trying to add to it and earn it. And you'll never be fulfilled.